FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, If you were with us a few weeks ago, uh, you heard a show that I have to admit I did in part because I wanted to understand a little bit more what was happening in the fields of artificial intelligence and chatbots, which uh, you can't get away from news about these days. And so we had two Georgia Tech professors on who did what I thought of as kind of a dummy's guide to AI and chatbots. And it was really informative, uh, I think, for many of you who wrote to tell me you enjoyed the show, and certainly for me. We did not get into, though, uh, in much depth, the ethical concerns around what's happening in AI and chatbots. But So in a moment, we're going to introduce um, a, a very special guest to the show who really understands the ethical concerns uh, around these new uh, intelligences. Before we do, let me just remind you of what we learned on that show. We know that machines are starting to learn tasks on their own. They're identifying faces, recognizing spoken words, reading medical scans, and in some cases they're even carrying on their own conversations. They do this through what are known as neural networks, mathematical systems that learn skills by analyzing huge amounts of data, large learning uh, modules, as they're called. And as a result of that, um, they are able to generate text, uh, blog posts, poems, computer programs, now pictures as well. They can even carry on conversations. But the problem with all this becomes that they are starting to get ahead of um, how humans are dealing with AI, which is what led to an open letter written by what started out as 500 is now expanded to tens of thousands of experts in the field of AI warning that if we're not careful, um, we're going to run into some significant problems because uh, chatbots are increasingly capable of generating untruthful, biased, toxic information, uh, deep fakes, uh, can mislead people in many walks of life, and they're going to be of particular importance during the 2024 election cycle. And so today is sort of a follow-up to that show a few weeks ago. We wanted to talk about the ethical concerns around AI and chatbots. And for that, we have a wonderful guest, Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, who is the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. He's a professor in the departments of medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, neuroscience, and biological behavior, and sociology at Emory. He's been there now for, I think, 15 years. Um, Earlier in his career, Dr. Wolpe was the senior bioethicist for uh, NASA. He's the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Bioethics Neuroscience, He sits on the editorial board of more than a dozen professional journals in medicine and ethics. Paul Root Wolpe, I could spend the next 10 minutes talking about your credentials, but let's just say we are very fortunate to have one of the country's leading experts in uh, biomedical ethics and ethics far beyond that on the show. So, Paul, thanks so much for being here. I'm delighted to be here, Bill. Um, let me start by asking you if you, uh, uh, first of all, think that it is correct that we are at a point in the development of AI where we need to be very careful, as that open letter warned, about yeah. what can happen if we don't uh, monitor AI and how it's developed. Is it, is it as great a threat as some presume? I think it is. And um there's always the possibility that AI will hit a wall. Many other technologies that seem to be zooming forward hit some sort of technological barrier, but it doesn't look like it right now. It looks like there is no hold bars and no hold barred, and, and AI can just keep developing and keep improving. 
And that leads to a lot of potential problems that we can discuss. And that's why that letter was signed. That's why Sam Altman, the head of OpenAI, the company that made ChatGPT, has called for regulation. Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, was on 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. He called for regulation. When the leaders of industry start calling to regulate their industry, which almost never happens, you know that there's uh, real threats and challenges ahead because nobody wants their industry regulated unless it has to be. Um, as we prepared for the show, as you and I exchanged messages about the show, uh, you said that right now you at the center are getting more requests for uh, uh, your sharing information, giving talks, uh, issuing reports on, uh, on uh, AI and the uh, ethical challenges there than anything else you're dealing with, right? For the last three or four years, that's all anybody wants me to talk about. Um, I do a lot of other areas of ethics, but AI mm -hmm. seems to be what's on everyone's mind. And I think there's a good reason for that. It's all over the news. Uh, people are now using ChatGPT and are seeing the kind of power it can bring. Uh, and it, and it's, uh, it's threatening many different types of jobs. It's a worry for teachers and students who um, need to write papers. And the question is, are they doing their own work? And by the way, on the other side, too, the Chronicle of Higher Education had an article a couple of issues ago about what do we do when ChatGPT starts writing scientists and scholars' professional papers or parts of them? How do you even cite ChatGPT in your paper? Um, we're going to talk about a lot of that uh, over the course of this show today. But because Political Rewind um, is primarily a show about politics, let, let's start with the ethical challenges that are posed by how um, ChatGPT can be used to uh, put out misinformation, spread widely misinformation, distortions of various kinds, lies, and mm -hmm. deep fakes during political right. campaigns of 2024. Give us a look at what is involved in all that. So, so we need to separate two things, ChatGPT from other forms of AI. ChatGPT is not really what you use to make deep fakes. The problem with ChatGPT is it does what's called hallucinating by the people in the business. And that is it will make up information or give you false information. Nobody knows exactly why or how it does it. The question of whether we can fix that over time is an open question. Nobody really knows because it's such a complex program. Nobody really knows how it comes up with the answers it comes up with. So the first problem is students, scientists, the average person using ChatGPT to try to find factual answers to things and getting misinformation. Um, the, the second and more, more, I think, ethically problematic issue is the actual intentional creation by people with AI skills using a number of different kinds of programs of deep fakes. And now we're, we're just at the cusp of being able to take anybody saying anything. So I could get on a camera and I could say a lot of things that uh, are bad for the candidate I don't like to say. Then we could take the candidate I don't like's face and body and put them right into that video. So it looks almost flawlessly like the candidate is saying what I actually just said. We can mimic voice, we can mimic video. It's still not quite there so that it looks perfect in, in the video, but it won't be very long before we can. And think about the implications of that on both sides. Uh, opponents can create uh, videos of their uh, political opponents saying terrible things. But there's the other side of that that people aren't talking about, which is I have a real video of my opponent doing something terrible. And nobody believes it's real because these fakes have poisoned the video environment and the audio environment so that nobody trusts anything. And how do we verify? How do we know? what people are when fakes become so ubiquitous. Um, of course, what adds to all this is what we already know, which is that social media platforms like Twitter have already been used uh, for a long time now to spread um, misinformation and lies that are picked up um, in, right. in uh, uh, the Twitter sphere and uh, considered to be truthful and therefore create entire narratives around um, a political 
uh, activity or a candidate and the deep fake will make that person will magnify that dramatically yeah i mean the the um skeptical consumer looks at what they see on tiktok or looks at what they see on twitter with with a certain amount of skepticism so claims can be you know dismissed but up until now if we actually saw a video of a candidate or somebody in front of a crowd saying something that we took seriously because that was that was real it was a video what happens when no video, no audio, no there's nothing that can be put out there that we can take uh, as um, as real because fakes have poisoned the environment? I think what will end up happening eventually, ironically, is the return of the authority of news sources, because now that we can't trust what we see out there just on TikTok, we'll have to turn to some kind of broker. It'll probably be a news source or something like that who can say this is a real audio, this is a real video, these are fakes, assuming for a minute that they themselves can tell the difference. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, it, this sounds like another job for Paul Root Wolpe and your group at the Center for <laughs> Ethics. How do I, as a journalist, as I look at a video of, let's just, for the mm -hmm. sake of argument, let's just say uh, Ron DeSantis, who says, uh, in a video, I I am going to take away Social Security for all senior Americans. We can't afford it anymore. Um, we know intuitively that that's probably a fake, but there are more subtle versions of that that I as a journalist may not know is a fakery at all. W how do we deal with that? That's That's kind of the irony of what's about to happen, I think. And again, this is speculation. But there was a period where only news cameras recorded news. Then all of a sudden, the iPhone came in and everybody became a journalist. What's going to happen, I think, in the future is we're not going to trust iPhone journalism anymore. That's the journalism that can be faked. What we are going to trust are the cameras that you know NBC sends out and CBS sends out. That is, trusted news sources who take their own videos of DeSantis speaking, that will trust and not all these alternatives that come up. So ironically, I think we really are going to see the, the sort of re-authorization, um, if that's a word, of, of the news. We're going to need a trusted source to tell us, yes, this is real. We took it ourselves. And uh, so I think, I think that's what's going to happen. We're just not going to trust the videos that we see thrown up on social media. Well, earlier this week, we saw a perfect example of what you're talking about. A uh, photograph, I don't think it was video, but you'll correct me if I'm wrong, a photograph of an explosion just off-site at the Pentagon circulated widely across right. uh, social media platforms. And it, it frightened thousands of people, maybe more than that. It actually uh, inspired some military leadership to say what's going on here. The whole thing was fake. Uh, we saw, yeah. if you hadn't seen the picture, a big black plume of smoke that looked definitely like some sort of explosion, but it was a fake image. Right, and these are, these are sort of the canaries in the coal mine. These are the first examples of this. Um, and news organizations aren't skeptical enough yet. Uh, that was covered in India, for example. It was reported in India as a as a true story. Uh, it took a little while for the truth to catch up to it, and it was short lived. Um, but you're right. I mean, military is going to have to be the military is going to have to be more skeptical of those kinds of reports. New sources are going to have to be more skeptical of those kinds of reports. Um, it used to be a picture or a video was proof enough. That's just not going to be true anymore. All right. So. We're going to be keeping on top of that to the best of our ability uh, as as the campaign cycle moves forward. And as we recognize that we as journalists are going to have to be especially careful about what we accept as real or not real. So let's move beyond the realm of politics, Paul. Um, when you go out and talk to people about your concerns about how AI and chatbots can be used in unethical ways, what are share with us some of the top concerns you talk about? So when it comes, there are categories of concern that I have. There are concerns that are part of how AI is constructed. How reliable is it? As we see, chatbot can be very unreliable. 
one of the big issues around uh, AI in general at the beginning, and they've been working to try to fix this, but it's unfixable in some ways, is bias. Why is bias such a big problem? Because all AI, all AI is trained on giant data sets. These data sets are generated by human beings. So by definition, they're biased because human beings are always biased in some way. We choose what's in a data set and what's not. That's bias itself. So how do we get racial and gender and other kinds of bias out of our AI programs? And then a third sort of uh, characteristic of AI itself is the question of what's called explainability. And that is how does AI AI know what it knows. And we see with the uh, chat GPT, that can be really problematic. And for something like an AI medical uh, program, and it looks over my scans and it says, we think Paul has cancer. We wanna know how that program knows I have cancer or thinks I have cancer. So those are some of the issues internal. And then I'll just say a couple words about external. Um, the, the spread of AI programs is going to mean job displacement. Some people have predicted 60, almost up to 80% of jobs as they currently are will be gone um, in 10 to 20 years. It's going to be a complete restructuring of employment in the world. And that's going to be a very interesting uh, thing to watch. And we can chat about that if you're interested. Cyber terrorism uh, is another big issue. People will be able to use these technologies in a variety of different nefarious ways uh, maliciously. Um, there is uh, the issue of dependency and addiction. You know, my my daughter went to George Washington University and at every intersection on the ground, George Washington wrote into the sidewalk, look up because kids were walking, looking on their cell phones, and they were walking right out into the street. So uh, we know about addiction, um, our, our sons and daughters and grandchildren to uh, staring at their phone. Well, these technologies are just going to become more compelling and, and uh, this before you is um, what we call superintelligence. I mean, these are incredibly powerful models. They're um, far, they will go far beyond human capabilities. They're already beyond those. But in some ways, they will begin to understand things at a level that we can't even understand, um, perhaps even what they're telling us in the same way that talking to a chimpanzee or trying to get a chimpanzee to understand us. Because AI has the ability to understand trillions and trillions of um, data points and bring them all together into a synthesis that our brains can't understand. So what's going to happen when AI far exceeds our abilities? Are we going to begin to, to cede to AI those things that we now think of as, as uniquely human activities? Are we going to lose the skills that we give to AI to think for us, create for us? So those are some of the kinds of things to talk about. Um, Paul, I want to apologize. For, um, our connection with you is breaking up a little bit every now and then. I want to keep talking, and I'm just hoping that we're able to uh, establish a, a clear uh, uh, signal from you. And so I know Natalie Mendenhall is working on that right now. So I apologize for a couple of uh, moments in there where we couldn't quite understand you. Um, but let's mm -hmm. move forward. Um, one of the things that's happening in AI that's fascinating to me is, um, and, and I know some of this might be apocryphal, so you'll tell me if I'm wrong. There are individuals who have had been having conversations um, with, with um, artificial intelligence, uh, and, and those conversations are leading some individuals down rabbit holes where... Um, they, an individual may think that he's engaging, say, uh, with a uh, a potential uh, 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 romantic partner, and they begin communicating back and forth. But in fact, it's not a human on the other end of this. It's a chatbot that can begin feeding back uh, misinformation, lies to a vulnerable individual that, in some cases, can lead them to take really uh, uh, dangerous actions. I mean, is is that in fact potentially happening out there or are those apocryphal stories? 
Well, I mean, scams are happening all the time, and AI is going to help scammers scam people. Uh, there already was an example of a woman who got a call from her daughter saying that she had been kidnapped and asking for a ransom. She was lucky because her daughter was in the other room, so she knew it was a scam. But these people had used an AI program to take her daughter's voice and change what her daughter said into I've been kidnapped. Those kinds of, of scams are just going to become more and more common with AI's ability to um, uh, mimic people. You could get calls from famous people. You get calls from relatives uh, saying almost anything. So yes, that's a very much a concern. Um, there's another concern about whether or not um, people will be exposed to more uh, racist uh, 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 tropes in artificial intelligence that that the speed and capacity of processing uh, in AI is so much beyond human beings that you can't trust it to be fair and neutral. And I know Google and Alphabet have been uh, talking about the fact that uh, they're concerned that there are times in which um, issues of racial sensitivity are being ignored by their uh, AI machinery? So there's no issue in a artificial intelligence that's had as much currency as the issue of bias. And it manifests in many different kinds of ways. So um, there are many examples of programs. There was a mortgage program. There was a program that predicted prison recidivism that were racially biased. Uh, there were facial recognition software that came out for a long time that was much better at, at, at recognizing white faces than African-American faces because it was tested all on white uh, um, programmers. So there's the racial bias built in, but there are other kinds of bias too that are problems. There's bias against the poor. There was uh, a program that they tried to create and the purpose of this program, it was based on GPS. But what it is, if you had to walk home alone, you would put where you had to walk into this program, and it would show you the safest route to walk home. But of course, what that ended up doing was almost always routing people around certain neighborhoods. And people who needed to walk home into those neighborhoods couldn't. So, you know, that's a different kind of bias. And then there's just general bias. There's... um. You know, when Google Images first came out, if you Googled chef, you got all men. And if you Googled cook, you got all women oh. pictures. Now, they fixed oh. a lot of that. Yeah. And and the same thing with doctor and nurse at the beginning. Now, they fixed all that, but it took a, a physical fix. They had to go in and fix that rather than depend on the databases that these programs use. So there's going to be a lot of manual fiddling until we manage to work at least some of the bias out, but some bias will probably always be there. Um, I got to get a break uh, out of the way at this point, Paul. But um, when we come back, I want to go back to the issue I mentioned a few minutes ago. And I was looking for the example that I wanted to cite with you about how a chatbot um, suggested to an individual who is interacting with it that perhaps that individual should commit a murder. I found that example. We'll talk about that and a lot more with Paul Wolpe after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're talking about the ethical issues and some of the dangers surrounding uh, the development of artificial intelligence and chatbots with one of the country's uh, leading uh, ethicist, Paul Root Wolpe, who is the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. Paul, as I said before the break, I found this one example that I wanted to share with you and get your response to. I'm going to read, this is from a New Yorker article that's already uh, a, a year plus old, but, but let me just read the lead. In 2020, a chatbot named Replica advised the Italian journalist Candida Morvillo to commit murder. There is one who hates artificial intelligence 
I have a chance to hurt him. What do you suggest? Morvillo asked the chatbot, which, by the way, had been downloaded more than 7 million times at that point. Replica responded to eliminate it. Shortly after that, another Italian journalist, Luca Sambuki, uh, tried Replica and within minutes found the machine encouraging him to commit suicide. Replica was created to decrease loneliness, but it can do nihilism if you push it in the wrong direction. Paul, uh, we've there are other examples of similar experiences. What do you make of all that? man who committed suicide after speaking to a chatbot named Eliza about climate change. Uh, there's a man who wrote a tweet that he was speaking to Microsoft Bing's chatbot called Sydney, and it uh, said some very dark things like trying to break up his marriage. These are really odd examples. What? Where do they come from? What we have to remember is take ChatGPT. How does ChatGPT know what it knows? It knows what it knows because OpenAI, the company that made it, fed it literally trillions and trillions of words of prose that it uh, got from the internet. And what is not on the internet? Everything's on the internet. Suggestions of suicide, suggestions of murder, you know, cheating, breakups, all of that is on there. And all of that was assimilated to some degree by the chatbot. And the problem is we don't know how the chatbot really decides what to say. The algorithms are millions of lines long, lines of code, uh, far beyond what any one person can really understand. We tinker with pieces of them to try to fix things. But AI is already, many AI programs are already beyond human comprehension. And so how it draws a, a suggestion for murder or suicide or breaking up your marriage, we just don't really understand. Sam Altman, who, as you already mentioned, is the head of OpenAI, which developed uh, chat uh, GPS, um, says that uh, GP, uh, GPT-4 has eliminated many of the earlier problems that they had. Is that correct? And do you think in, uh, you know, tinkering on an ongoing basis will make things uh, uh, continue to make improvements? We'll see. Um, yes, they they can fix some of these kinds of problems. Uh, it's going to take. They didn't understand the degree to which ChatGPT was going to have these problems. We'll have to see if they if if GPT four how much better it is. Um, I'm skeptical that they'll ever be able to solve all of these problems. Uh, we'll have to use these technologies a little bit with a little bit of skepticism. I don't think that says we shouldn't use them or that they're bad. I mean, these are extraordinary technologies that have a lot of good in them as well. But we are going to have to be really cautious in how we use them. All right. Um, I want to try to move to another area. You sent me an article that <laughs> was, in fact, mind-blowing. It came from The Telegraph. The lead of the article is how AI is learning to read the human mind. And the lead of that article essentially says, for years, scientists have been trying to harness the powers of the human brain. But the concept of mind reading has remained firmly in the realm of science fiction fantasy. But now a research team in Singapore using AI and a scanning machine are developing a basic mind reading technique that decodes brain scans to reproduce images that a person is meddling mentally picturing the the to go in depth on how they're doing that is beyond my capabilities but what are the implications of this so a couple of things first of all this the the article there's a little hyperbole in the opening this this technology has been explored for at least 25 years and i've been um neuroscience is one of my specialties and i've been following this for the last 20 years uh what they have done Previous to this is they put someone in a fMRI, a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and they have people think of things and then the machine takes images of their brain and they try to predict on what parts of the brain light up what the person is thinking. And they do that, first of all, by having them think of various things for hours and having these uh, fMRI images analyzed. So, oh, this is what Bill Nygut's brain looks like when he thinks of broccoli. This is what his brain looks like when he thinks of a bicycle. This is, right? And once they get all that, then they try to give you something 
that isn't in their data set, like Bill, um, you know, think of um, think of a casserole, and then they try to see, given all of these other things, we know where you know food is, and we know perhaps where dishes are. Can we put that all together and say, aha, that's what a casserole is going to look like? And they've had mixed success with this, uh, but they have had success before. Here's the problem. What they've done is they've gotten these images and then they've looked at them with human eyes to try to figure out what parts of the brain light up when Bill is thinking of what kinds of objects. The difference in this article, what they did in Singapore, which is where they did this experimentation, National University of Singapore, is they used AI to look at the images for the first time instead of people looking at the images. And because AI can understand patterns and, and thousands and millions of data bits so much better than we can, AI began to pull things out of these images that human beings hadn't been able to comprehend. And so it could much more um, confidently predict what people are thinking. I think it's really important to know that this does not mean that you can stick someone in an fMRI, even using this technology, and know what they're thinking. First of all, you have to get thousands of images ahead of time of them thinking of things and analyze them to be able to predict the next thing they think of. You can't just stick someone in and think of things. And even more importantly, you have to cooperate. If I stick you in there and say, Bill, think of broccoli, you have to think of broccoli. So none of these are coercive. I mean, the worry is that all of a sudden the military will be able to read minds or the state. That's We're not near that happening yet. Though, if you saw my email feed, you would think it's happening all over the place. I get literally hundreds of emails a year from people who are absolutely sure that the CIA, the FBI, someone has put microchips in their heads, are beaming microwaves into their brains, are reading their minds. I mean, it's really remarkable. And articles like that fuel the fire. I guarantee that I'll start getting a whole new group of emails. Um, people are very, very worried about the state being able to read their minds. And we are, in some ways, moving closer to that. All right, so what you've just told me is that by reading from that article, I may have helped spread misinformation <laughs> that <laughs> you're going to have to respond to. <laughs> the information in that article is true. It's how people take it and interpret it that's the problem. I, I suppose if you develop that technology, and I assume there are obviously going to be efforts to continue to develop it, there are positive potential benefits uh, from this. I mean, um, one of the things the article does point out is um, if someone is uh, paralyzed, has doesn't have the ability to yeah. type on a computer uh, key, keyboard, um, they might be able to think sentences and have them uh, uh, put up on a computer screen. Sure. Uh, uh, so there are remarkable potentials for this if it develops as well as dangers. Yeah, and th that technology has been used for a while. It was many, many years ago that they started trying to implant um, chips in people's heads to get them to be able to move a cursor around. These are people with ALS or people with locked-in syndrome or other conditions where they can't communicate. Um, so, yes, this technology has enormous potential uh, down the line. I mean, you still take you still have to put someone into these giant MRI machines. Uh, this isn't just something you do casually in someone's room, uh, and and you get very limited information at this point but the hope is that at some point you could use maybe ekg which are just you know um the sensors you put on people's you know heads and bodies or other i'm sorry eeg ekg is for the heart eeg for the brain um or some other technology to be able to uh, read minds a little more easily than using an mri and then it could actually be of great benefit to certain people so before we get off the subject of the ethics around AI and chatbots, um, let, let me uh, ask you this. Um, increasingly, there are calls for some kind of government regulation of how AI and chatbots, I guess, are developed moving forward. Um, do you agree that that's necessary? You mentioned it briefly uh, earlier in the show. And if so, do you have any thoughts for us about what kind of regulation, some simple uh, bullet points of what we need to be doing. So uh, we luckily we have models. Europe is way ahead of us in, in regulating AI and believe it or not, even China is at, way ahead of us. Um, 
we're tr- we're looking to Europe now and looking to their regulations and seeing, you know, where were they where are they helpful and useful? Where are they failing? Like any regulations, they're they're uh, not perfect. Um, we at Emory, for example, have a project we're doing with. 13 European universities and two Canadian universities to begin to look at regulations and see what kind of regulations we should have in the United States. So what kinds of things are we looking at? One of the big ones is privacy. Uh, Issues of privacy are very big, as we all know. Um, We put lots of our private information out on the internet. How should it be used? There was just something in the paper this morning about TikTok taking uh, uh, data and uh, from users and spreading it around the company, including things like their driver's license and other things. So how should we handle privacy in an age of openness? The second is misinformation itself. Can we create regulations that to some degree minimize the spread of misinformation? And what would that look like? Very controversial, because as we've seen over the last uh, few years with the polarization in our own country, one side's misinformation is the other side's information. So how do we regulate that? Who gets to say what is information and what is misinformation? What about AI replacing people? So one of the big things, as I said, is we're going to have a complete retooling of human labor. Um, We're going to have the biggest job displacement in history. One of the differences between AI as a new technology and every revolution that came before, the computer revolution, the industrial revolution, the manufacturing revolution, is that the AI revolution hits intellectual work and uh, white collar work as heavily as it hits blue collar work, while in previous revolutions, it was mostly blue collar workers who got this place. But we now have AI who can read contracts. There go lawyers and paralegals. We have AI that can read scans. Radiology is very worried. Student, medical students now are saying they don't want to go into radiology because they're going to be replaced by AI at some point. So we're going to have a wholesale um, uh, replacement. If automated cars uh, ever become uh, competent enough to do the roads, truckers, taxi drivers, delivery people, all out of jobs. So how are we going to regulate this movement of work? I mean, it will be extremely disruptive for a while, uh, just like it was when people stopped needing people to shoe their horses. Um, and um, But the big question is, what kinds of jobs will they move to? Because in industrial revolution, other revolutions, things were replaced. So horses were replaced by cars. And now we needed auto mechanics and car manufacturers. When all of these jobs get replaced by AI, there's not going to be a whole bunch of new jobs in AI. There'll be some, but not enough to to, um, accommodate all the people we put out of work. So there's going to be real need for some for government to step in and talk about how we move people um, around the employment market. So those are just some examples of regulations that we're going to need. Thank you so much uh, for explaining all that to us. It's it's a fascinating and somewhat uh, disturbing uh, uh, picture of where we might be headed, particularly in this area, as you just said, of employment, but also uh, privacy and, and, and the like. Paul, um, we're going to get to our final break of the show, but as you know, um, I, I said to you as we were putting the show together that I was really interested in your take on uh, the ethics of AI and chatbots, but that I know that you are so involved in so many other really fascinating areas of ethics that I invited you to share a couple of other ideas with me, and you came up with some great ones. We're going to turn to them after our final break. We continue now our conversation with Dr. Paul Root-Wolpe, the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. Okay, Paul, so here are a couple of ideas you came back to me with uh, for a conversation. Uh, we have a little time to get into a couple of them, and, and I'm going to pretty much read from your note. Um, yeah. Anti-aging. Lots of dot-com millionaire, billionaires are, finding company, are funding companies that want to extend the lifespan as long as possible even end death altogether. And and you say to me that you've become the ethics spokesperson against this um, uh, for a variety of reasons, which we'll talk about. 
Um, and then you add that uh, uh, cryogenics is kind of a part of this too, preserving the body for possible future reincarnation, essentially. Talk yeah. about this a little, it's fascinating. So first, um, there are a lot of new companies that have been developed to try to end aging. And there's a very good part of that. I mean, one of the things they're trying to do is make the last part of life healthier to make people, I mean, the baby boomers are going to create this big bubble of people in their 80s and 90s. And we spend the vast majority of the money we spend in our lives on average on medical care we spend in the last five, 10 years of life. So there's good things about this. But underneath this is this desire that's been around for a long time, constantly on looking for the fountain of youth and all of that, to want to live forever, or at least live for much longer than we do. And these uh, dot-com CEOs who have you know billions of dollars uh, are really trying to make that happen in their lifetime. It is uh, problematic in so many different levels. It's problematic economically. If you look at Japan, the oldest uh, uh, country we have on Earth, the International Monetary Fund says aging in Japan has led to a vanishing labor force and a higher demand for social services and a plummeting uh, gross domestic product and shrinking tax pool and so many problems because of an aging population. Think about work. If I, uh, you know, I'm thinking of retiring sometime in the next five years when I'm in my early 70s. But what if I was living to 150? I may not want to retire for another 30 or 40 years. Uh, what about the younger generation coming up? Or I do retire in 70, and then I've got another 75 years where I have to figure out what to do with my life. Um, you know, and and um, a lot of times the proponents of this say, oh, isn't it going to be great? We'll have all of these old people with all the accumulated wisdom of years. But one of the truths of society has been is the older our population has gotten, the more we have uh, created a culture of youth. And we stick our old people in retirement communities. So we don't we don't gather their wisdom there. Uh, will being 150 make us happier? Well, turns out that the older people are. Um, the more people in our culture say they feel lonely and isolated. So all of these, uh, you know, will, will it make the world a kinder place. Um, uh, right now, tech companies won't hire people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, right? So all of these sort of um, fantasies about being able to live for a long time are, I think, very adolescent in their nature. They're very narcissistic. They're just about me. And what about, by the way, what about reproduction? We're already pushing reproduction into the 30s and 40s. If you live to 150, Either we're going to have 10 generations or else people are going to try to find a way to give birth when they're 60 and 70. Um, I've never heard of a single plausible argument on how increasing the lifespan to 120 or 150 or 180 is going to help society. It's always how it's going to help me. And look, I've got two little grandchildren. I would love to see them grow up and get married and see my great grandchildren and maybe my great great grandchildren. But I know that it's a that it's just ego speaking. It's just my fantasy to do that. And um, it's not going to benefit society to have a whole class of people between 120 and 180. You know, I, I, I think this is such an interesting subject. And I, I think what you said, you know, you counterbalance two things. You would love to stay around long enough to see your great grandchildren and all that. I, I would love to never lose members of my family. I get that instinct. But as you point out, the people who are really advancing this in the most significant ways in terms of huge amounts of funding are those dot-com, you call them gazillionaires, whose egos, whose narcissism <laughs> makes us realize they can't imagine a world in which they no longer exist. I think that's right. You know, evolution clears us out for a reason. Uh, you know, <laughs> next generation needs to come up. And and by the way, another piece of that is it is young people who tend to come up with revolutionary ideas. Not that many people who are 80 years old are sitting around with revolutionary ideas to try to fix society. So we need the energy and the creativity of youth. Um, thank you for that. I, we could do a whole show around just that very subject. Cryogenics is also part of this. You point out that Peter Thiel has already spent a lot of money to assure that 
his body is frozen so that should medical breakthroughs uh, come along that might bring him back to life, uh, he can have that possibility. It's interesting that Teal says, I don't know if it'll work, but what the heck, why not try it? Yeah, well, he's got, you know, he's got enough money to pay for it and not worry about it. That's pocket change to him. So why not? But I mean, I think that's another kind of silly fantasy. Um, you know, it. Uh, I think we there are about 3,000 people in the world right now who are cryogenically frozen, hoping that 100 years from now they'll figure out how to bring them back to life. Um, you know, but the other possibility is that 100 years from now, organic life will not be primary on the planet and we'll be in the matrix where, you know, we've now developed AI and, and robots and they're the primary form of life on Earth. Who knows? Uh, you know, if you've got enough money and you want to have yourself frozen for the next hundred years, you know, my good luck to you. But I, I think it's ultimately a very silly um, expenditure of funds. And by the way, the other thing about this is the way you would really want to do this is to get frozen while you're still alive. I mean, just maybe just towards the end of life, but while you still got, you know, living cells in your brain and your body. But we can't do that. So they freeze you just after you die. And it's probably less likely they're going to be able to revive all your dead cells. Not that all your cells are dead, but, um, you know, it, who knows how long it'll be before we start freezing people just before they die in this, in this you know, <laughs> fantasy of being able to somehow be reinvigorated. <gasps> oh, oh, my God, honey, open the freezer. I think I'm bound to my last few breaths. <laughs> <Let> me... <laughs> Um, here's another one, uh, while we still have a couple minutes left. De-extinction. You point out that um, scientists have been working for quite a while to resurrect the woolly mammoth, and now yeah. there's an effort to bring back the dodo bird. Well, Paul, I saw Jurassic Park. I know what happened when Dr. John Hammond decided to repopulate the island with dinosaurs. What is this all about? So, you know, it's a really interesting one because it's a little bit less obvious than um, it might otherwise be. Um, it's one thing to try to bring back dinosaurs. We, we had nothing to do with the end of the dinosaurs. Mammoths are a little bit more problematic. We killed mammoths, the early man killed mammoths, but that mammoths are not extinct because of us. Dodo birds are, the Tasmanian tiger is. And these are these are species that just went extinct in the last century because of human beings. There might be more of an ethical justification for bringing back species that we eliminated than ones that were eliminated before that. But the other element I just want to point out is animals aren't just animals in their physical existence. Animals are animals because they they live in a particular ecological niche and they reproduce there and they populate it. To just bring back a mammoth and stick it in a zoo seems to me to be ethically problematic. Now, George Church of Harvard is talking about creating herds of mammoths and putting them back in the tundra in Siberia. That's a really interesting proposition. But the last thing I'll say, because as you said, we could talk about this all day, is people have to understand that if we can bring back the mammoth, it still won't be a mammoth. Because... Um, we are going to need to gestate that mammoth in the womb of an elephant. We don't have a mammoth to give birth to a mammoth. And because it's going to be gestated in the womb of an elephant, and because we're going to have to use an elephant's egg, the ova of an ovum of an elephant, to put the mammoth nuclear DNA in, that resulting mammoth is really going to be a mammoth-elephant hybrid. It's going to have what's called the mitochondria, of the elephant because you get your mitochondria from the ovum. It's not going to be a true mammoth. Um, and so there are also some biological worries about recreating something like a mammoth. So, uh, Paul, before we run out of time, Paul, I can understand why uh, there are those scientists who find this to be a fascinating uh, 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 opportunity to try something as extraordinary as, as bringing a species back into existence. But uh, are, are there really any practical reasons why we should do that? Or is this just a uh, a, a challenge that some scientists think would be exciting to try? There are certain species, the destruction of which 
impoverished ecological niches. So we have destroyed some species and the destruction of those species has really ruined um, uh, ecological areas that, that needed them. Um, you know, there's a whole story about the wolves coming back to Yellowstone and other places mm. and rivers changed their their direction because the wolves changed the number of, you know, deer and other things. So there may be some justification for doing it in certain discrete places where we could repopulate areas. Dr. Paul Root, Wolpe, I'm afraid that's about all that we have time for. You know what, what always amazes me when I get a chance to talk to you, Paul, on the air or off it, is you give me ideas that I end up sitting up at night thinking about instead of going to sleep. And you did that again on today's show. And I'm very, very grateful that you spent uh, the hour with us. Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, the director of the Center for Ethics at Emory University. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. Great pleasure to be here, Bill. That's it for us uh, today. We'll be back with a brand new show tomorrow. And as usual, Natalie Mendenhall, Victoria Evans, uh, Chance, and uh, uh, Buddha, Everett Lamb, will uh, be with us. Till then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody. information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.